Coming up on The Mark Divine Show. If a layer is not clearly helping the people at the coal face, or you, the guys on the ground on the mission, then get rid of them, because all they're doing is slowing you down, adding costs, inflexibility. It can't just be neutral. It's got to be positive. And who is the decision maker on whether it's helpful or not? I would say it's the SEAL team on the ground. Hi, this is Mark Devine. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most inspirational and compassionate and courageous leaders. My guests include notable folks from all areas of life, including technology wizards, survivors of extreme adversity, stoic philosophers, and top business leaders and thinkers, such as our guest today, Roger L. Martin. Roger is the co-head of a global strategic consulting firm, dean of the Rotman School of Management in Canada, Thinkers 50's number one management thinker in the world, and an advisor to top CEOs. His life work has been to question dominant models and understand why they fail to meet the needs of problems they were designed to address today, and to find new, more powerful mental models to think about the problems that organizations face. He's written many Harvard Business Review articles and other books, including the bestseller Play to Win, and now a book called A New Way to Think, which we get into in this show. Roger, thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really nice to meet you. I've enjoyed uh, thumbing through your new book, A New Way to Think. I've got it right in front of me. So Excellent. You thank your team for sending that to me. Excellent. Uh, great stuff. I'm anxious to get into it. I'm a little bit of a aficionado around leadership and mostly personal leadership, but obviously yes. you know that spills into organizational leadership because there's such an overlap. And my company does leadership development and team building. You know, I don't consider myself a scholar in the sense that you are, but um, I have a lot of familiarity. So I love talking about it, even though my podcast tends to veer toward motivation and uh, mental toughness. This is a passion of mine. So I'm super excited to kind of dig in with you. Well, in a manner of speaking, it is a leadership book. You have a chance to own your models. Right. Are you going to or not? Right. I suspect that's one message in various forms that you send in your leadership book. 100%. And how mental models can trap us or free us, you know, and how to deconstruct models that aren't working and reconstruct them. I usually talk about that in the context of what's working in life in general, but it's yes. totally relevant in business. So before we kind of get into some of the cool principles that you're teaching and have uncovered in the last few years, what were some of the models that framed how you shaped your life? I saw you were Canadian and then you went to Harvard undergrad and MBA. So that shaped you in certain ways. And yes. so let's, let's talk about the formation of Roger Martin and then we'll kind of get into what deconstructed that and where you're heading. Yeah, sure. I guess I think most people are a product of their environment to a great extent. Mine growing up, first 18 years of my life was in a very small town. When I was a small boy, it was about 50 people. Oh, wow. You beat me. I was in upstate New York, 375. Yeah. It's that big now. So Wallenstein is a metropolis. It maybe is even four or 500 now. Oof, but, uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. as big time. But it was 50. And probably by the time I left, it was maybe 100. And I didn't grow up on a farm. I grew up in a little town. But my father, when I was two, started an entrepreneurial venture, which is manufacturing animal feed for the farmers. So I sort of was ensconced in, in that world. Mm -hmm. And I think what shaped my models were really coming from a small town and my parents. So dad, entrepreneur, high school educated, became an entrepreneur after high school, right? But he always had a very 
what if you went to MIT, you'd be call it a system dynamics view of the world. This is connected <laughs> to this, it's connected to this, it's connected to this. And I would always ask them questions, right? I'd say, Dad, you are like super cheap. You don't spend on anything at the feed mill. You don't even have it your own office because you say, well, there's always somebody out. I can just sit in their office. So the 100% owner of the company right. thinks other people should have offices and not as not him. So you're terribly cheap, but you have sort of the Taj Mahal of truck washing facilities out back behind the mill. Mm-hmm. I just like, I don't get it. And you wash the trucks like mm-hmm. multiple times a day sometimes when they're perfectly fine. Why do they need to be washed? And he always would start, well, well, Roger, you know, the farmers, their animals are really sensitive. If they miss a feeding, especially chickens, which was our biggest business, they're off their growth trajectory for life. Really? Right? Oh, they're wow. relatively short lives. And so the last thing a farmer wants to hear is a call from Wallenstein Feed and Supply Limited saying, our truck broke down, we'll be there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If those trucks are pristine and beautiful looking coming down the farm lane to the barn, they're just not going to think about that. They're going to say, Wallenstein takes care of its trucks. Wallenstein will always deliver. And I'm th- sort of thinking, after I graduated from Harvard Business School and went out into the world, some 30 years after, I learned about signals of value, right? Right. Things that aren't of actual direct value, but signal to you that the value is there. Yeah, it's right? a form of reception management, right? But yeah. it's got to be followed up with real delivery. Well, you got to deliver, and he delivered. He was giving me these sort of sophisticated thoughts just from his, well, Roger, this is the way it is. And that happened numerous times. Hey, Dad, why do we have a price list that we hand out to the farmer at the start of the sales call, and we never, ever, ever deviate from the price list? Well, Roger, if a farmer thinks that prices are for negotiation, the entire sales call will be a price negotiation. If instead, they can feel confident that not another farmer on the face of the planet is going to get a better price than the one that's printed on the list that he's given. Our salesperson can spend the entire sales call talking about quality of our feed and the service and all of that. And that's what I want them to talk about. That's fascinating. And then I say, but dad, what if a competitor undercuts us at that farmer? Don't you want to fight that back? Well, no, Roger, if we've got good cost position, they're undercutting us at a given farmer. That's not who we should be winning. Mm-hmm. We should figure out who they're overpricing and go win them. So mm-hmm. if you see what I mean, it's just a, it was system dynamics and trying to always think in a more sophisticated way about how the world works before you make decisions. Yeah, I love that. It must have been a lot of fun, you know, at Harvard and afterwards to kind of look backward and be like, oh, wow, look at that. Yeah. My dad was pretty wise and that was system dynamics and that was price inelasticity and that was... <laughs> Price signaling, you know what I mean? Yeah. And all of that stuff. I mean, unfortunately, it felt a little bit different, to be honest. I shouldn't be so mean about it, but I liked Harvard College. I learned a lot there. Harvard Business School, I was like, gee, this is not very sophisticated. I've heard more sophisticated thinking at my little breakfast nook table that we... Uh, Do you think the academia is just too far removed from the reality? Or they thought that their ideas were above the average business person? I think a lot of it is reductionism. Yes. Right. So that the business education world has embraced reductionism. You know, think about finance, think about all else being equal. And that was impossible for my dad 
and not in his character. I should say yeah. my mother was the opposite. So dad, 100% always answered my questions. Mom never would. She would help me along. Like I would say, why was Aunt Delphine mad at Fred? I don't know. Why do you think so, Roger? And then I would come up with like, well, maybe it's just that. She said, well, how would you know that? Have you thought about this? And right. And so literally, I got one who gave me these very sophisticated, complicated answers, the high school educated one. Right. And the more educated one would always do the, well, what do you think? Your dad was the, the practical business guy and taught you that. Your mom was the philosopher, taught you Socratic method and how to, yes. how to yeah. the art of inquiry. That was beautiful. Yes. So I think both of those, though, made me interested in models. I didn't know it at the mm -hmm. time that that's what I was interested in. And I was interested in how you think about what you think. It wasn't just mm -hmm. get an answer. It was ask the question, hmm, how should I think about this? What kind of a problem is this? Right. What's coming to me now, which is interesting, is this meta-narrative that you called reductionism that is permeated and still does are all academic institutions, but particularly scientific and business schools, would like to think that they're the science of management, you know, and they're yes. veering off into leadership, which is more of an art. So that's cool. Yeah. But, you know, I had a similar experience. I went to NYU Stern School of Business, 85 to 89. Yeah. Then I joined the Navy, so I, I put that to good use. Not. Yes. But, you know, it's a whole different story. <laughs> you, you and my friend A.G. Lafley, he was the Navy too. There you go, yeah. And anyways, I came back into business after getting off active duty to start a microbrewery, a brewing company, mm. fourth one here in San Diego. Yes. And there wasn't a lick of the MBA which was useful except the three letters on a piece of paper which helped me raise a million and a half bucks yes. and get a bank yes. loan. Yes. So it wasn't a waste of time or money, but the concepts weren't very useful. Interestingly, too, though, it teaches you a language system. True that, yeah. So that's how you got the money. And then you could say you term sheet and, that's right. and financing yeah. and debt and you equity. And if you wouldn't have had your business education, you would have spoken a language system that they would say that. I would have spoken Navy SEAL. And, yes. and that would have been intriguing to them. They would have wanted to have a beer with me, but they probably wouldn't have given me their money. <laughs> no, no, that is, that is, that is true. But today, and this is relating to your book, it's very clear that science of management has missed the forest for the trees. Just like mm -hmm. economics doesn't work anymore. And we keep trying the same things, expecting different results, and yet yes. we just make things worse. Macro is a full science. Yeah, it is. And so- Micro is something real. Like it still I, works, I, right? Yeah. Micro, micro works. Where the curves cross for an individual market, where the curves cross for a yeah. company in that market, that's all right. But then a bunch of people said, why don't we blow this up using unbelievably heroic assumptions to the economy <laughs> as a whole? And it's a, I hate to say it, it's just a faux science. I do agree. If somebody said, you've got to either bet a million dollars on the 10 top macroeconomists making some forecast and 10 people I picked out of the New York City phone book. Yeah. I'd do the New York City phone book, phone I'm book. afraid. That's not very nice, but it's true. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. Things are, you know, there's, it's like the difference between complicated and complex, right? Mm-hmm. 
in you know management science, which came out of the military, worked when things were complicated and you could sort of see a cause and effect relationship or yes. some linearity. And where we're at now is we've blown past that. Yep. And we're in a yep. very complex world. And you make the case in your book, New Way to Think, we actually have to throw out the old models and construct a new model that's based upon, let's start and look at the forest and the complexity of things and then kind of work from there, right? So yes. we have to flip our models. And that changes everything. Changes the way you look at your customer, the way you look at strategy, culture. I think it's fascinating because once you get trained and your brain starts to get really comfortable with certain way and certain expectations, it's not easy to change your behavior, let alone the behavior of an entire organization. I think that's true. And there are little things that I would say you can help yourself by doing, right? If you ever catch anybody or yourself saying, all else being equal, blah, 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 <laughs> a little red flag ching, should go up in your head that says, why don't I just spend five minutes on what the implication would be if all those other things aren't equal? Right. And maybe I'll say, oh, that's fine. But I would argue more often end up saying, oh my God, this other thing that isn't equal and isn't included in my little formula is going to kill me. We'd be better off that way. And the same, I, I would say, you know, there's that chapter on, you know, kind of all data is from the past. So whenever we analyze the past, we are assuming that the future will be direct extrapolation of the past. And so I just say, well, anytime you pick up an analysis, okay, here's an analysis and it says X, you have to ask yourself the question, am I willing to assume the future will be identical to the past? And if the answer is yes, then I will make whatever decision that piece of paper or that analysis says. But if I'm sort of like, wait a minute, in the world of business in general, in my industry in specific, it keeps changing, then I will take it with a grain of salt. So you need those little questions to try and drive you into a more productive territory. I love that because those sayings are mental models yes. or props for mental models. You know, yes. So you can look at that saying, like all else being equal, and flip that and say, well, let's assume that nothing is ever equal anymore, right? Yes. yes. And everything's flipped, right? So that takes a leg out of the stool of that old model. And then you have to like, yes. oh, okay, so now and Last what? time I checked, when you do that, it falls over. It falls over. Right? <laughs> I'm uh, in my doctoral program, finishing something I started back in 2000 in leadership. Then I was recalled to go to a war in Iraq. No small thing. Oh, my goodness. And so I didn't You survived. Good for you, my friend. Yeah, I did. And when I was over there, I decided that I wanted to teach leaders in a real setting, meaning like yep. real visceral, you know, do this, do that, and growth as opposed to like an academic setting. So I didn't finish. And that kind of stuck with me because Mark Devine, one of my mental models is I'm not a quitter. Divines aren't quitters, right? Yes. <laughs> so here I am at 58 back in my doctoral program. But my global leadership and change professor said that we've left behind the information age and we're now in the age, uh, conceptual age. We also talked about the exponential age, which is more about the speed of technological adaptation and change. But what he was referring to is that the most important skill for leaders or for organizations is creation. Yes. Creating something new, creating new concepts, new ideas, new ways of behavior, new cultural models out of something that really didn't exist before yes. or evolving them. But I would agree. And, you know, Aristotle, the greatest scientist of all time, he said, there's two parts of the world. There's a part of the world where things cannot be other than they are. But if I have a pen in my hand and I let go of it, it's going to fall. It did last week, like next week, 100 years from now in Fort Lauderdale in San Diego, it'll fall. And he said, in that part of the world, the job of human beings is to understand the cause 
of the effects we see. So you can kind of optimize to that. That's the scientific process. That's the scientific method, right? That's what he created. But he said there's another part of the world where things can be other than they are, like smartphones. This part of the world, in 1999, there were exactly zero of these. Last time I checked, there were 4.4 billion of them. That's the part of the world where things can be other than they are. And there he said something quite different. He said, don't use my scientific method, A. B, your job as a human in that part of the world is to be the cause of the effect you want to see. And the technique you need to use rather than analyzing a sample of data is to imagine possibilities and choose the one for which the most compelling argument can be made. I love that. Steve Jobs is like screaming at us right now, like, yes, I said that. Think of what he did. Think of what he did his entire career, one time after the next. He imagined a possibility, and then he compellingly argued to both himself and everybody else for it and became, you know, probably the most important CEO of his era. But the interesting thing is most people would have considered him a way out there kind of wacko guy. Aristotle would have characterized him as being incredibly rigorous, right? Right. But the form of rigor in that part of the world is different and it involves imagination. So I agree. And unfortunately, business school education is not helping people develop that capability. They're helping them figure out how to analyze everything to death, but not imagining things. I was just going to ask, so what's the answer to that? How do we train future leaders to be creative and insightful? One place is design school. Right. I actually was at a dinner table with Joe Gibbia, who I'd never met before, the co-founder of Airbnb. Mm-hmm. RISD graduate, Rhode Island School of Design, as an undergrad, not a master's in, he was an undergrad in design. And I just said, Joe, what would you say, if anything, was important that you learned at RISD that helped you grow Airbnb? And he was so fast and clear on the answer. He said, well, you know, for the entire time I was there, all they did is over and over asked us to imagine new possibilities. I came out of that with practice in imagining possibilities. That education, you're constantly trying to create new things for four years instead of you're trying to analyze what exists. Makes me want to go back to school and yeah. design school, right? That's amazing. I agree with that. The problem is it's tiny. It's hard to figure out exactly how many design degrees are given out a year, but I think it's something in the fifteen to 20,000. That's an opportunity for business schools to reinvent themselves, you know? Yes, it is. But you know how many business degrees are given out a year? Like half a million. Half a million. Wow. Yeah, because there's like 180,000 MBAs, but they're way more undergrads. So, And these are all individuals learning to think for the old models. Yeah. Still. What do you think the future of work is? What does it look like? And I submit that that future is on us pretty damn quickly, if not already. Well, one of the things I think is going to characterize it is that we're going to recognize that most business work is project-based. I know. I saw that. I'm really interested in how you would you organize for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's big companies that organize that way. You know what I mean, Accenture, Deloitte, they're $50 billion companies organized by project. Now that you say that, the SEAL teams, we were organized that way. Mission focus was being project focused. You know, our rank really was secondary. That was a job, but it was more of a title than a job. Yes, but it also sort of specified what position you could take in a project. True. So there would be a leader who would say, oh, when we have this project called go rescue those Americans who are being held captive 
over there, you'd say, well, who could lead that person? Now let's create a team. They'll go train for it. Then they'll go do it. Then it's over. It's done. It never happens again. As opposed to if you were in an old-fashioned factory, you'd be on the third station on the assembly line doing the same thing over and over every day, every week, every month, every year. So we imported into these knowledge-based jobs, which SEALs is. It's a knowledge-based workers, real-time problem solvers, planners, all that kind of stuff. We just ported over from that world this sort of flat job notion when it just isn't. I love what the elite military ingrains in people, I think. But you can tell me, like, you know, you're the expert. You lived it. But there isn't this rigid distinction between strategy and execution. That's right. Because SEAL teams, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, know that all sorts of stuff is going to happen when you head out on your mission. And you are going to have to figure stuff out in real time or die. And so there isn't this sort of like, well, we do all the clever stuff here when we set the mission of your team and you're just executing. You're absolutely right. And there's a few nuances which are really fun and I won't go deep into this. The planners are the executors. Yes. Right. And so they recognize that no plan survives contact with reality or the enemy in our case. And so we just create a good enough plan that gets us out the door so we can learn on the fly. And that becomes the OODA loop, which became popular in business circles as well. John Boyd. John John Boyd, yeah. So you observe what's happening, you orient, you change, you learn from it, you make another decision, and you fail your way toward victory. Yes. But seriously, what would have you said as a SEAL team member if your SEAL team leader just said, well... I've got the plan and you boys are just executing now. I'll do we would this, have laughed right? at them. Well, there's yeah. some great fun stories. Like the SEALs are for a very long time somewhat unique in this regard. And also the tier one units. But a lot of the units that came out of the army, which was much more centralized, they didn't have this built into their culture. Ah, uh, interesting. A great example is that I had one of a friend tell me that they were on a pretty important op. And the, the Rangers had one job, provide protective flanking security and and reactionary force and the seals were going to get the bad guy yep and so the ranger leader and the seal commander in this case the seal commander wasn't on the floor because he wanted to give his second the experience and so seal commander is just there quietly watching his team oh interesting and he looks over the ceiling goes why aren't you leading the seal said i am leading (laughs) yes yeah oh (laughs) cha-ching that kind of speaks to what we're talking yes, about, the command yeah. and control versus allow the guys closest to the action to figure it out because they've got the best information. Exactly. Right? And I think you make this point in your book about yes. trying to support every level of whatever the bureaucracy is because you're always going to have that no matter how flat an organization is there to support the level below it. Yes. And the closer you can get everyone to supporting the guy on the ground or the woman on the ground who's dealing with a customer, yes, then the more execution excellence you're going to have. Absolutely. And if they can't, right, get rid of them. (laughs) If a layer is not clearly helping the people at the coal face or you, the guys on the ground on the mission, then get rid of them because all they're doing is slowing you down, adding costs, inflexibility. It can't just be neutral. It's got to be positive. And who is the decision maker on whether it's helpful or not? I would say it's the SEAL team on the ground. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show.
It sounds simple, but it's the exact opposite of how most big organizations were either evolved or were designed. Yes. I think of like the worst examples, of course, are the bureaucratic organizations of a government. Yes. You know, which everything is designed for information to flow uphill. Yes. And almost to the extent where if they're busy creating a report or something and you're the customer, like, hello, chirp, chirp, too bad, right? Yeah, yeah, too bad for you. You know, you can wait till we've got it done. How do we take an organization or, or society, I guess is a better word, that have been built for process to transform them to be built for projects and to be radically focused on the customer instead of the organization's hierarchical informational needs? Well, and this will come as a shocker to you, uh, of course, is leadership, right? But it does play a big role. But what my view on it is, you can get there with baby steps. You do not have to transform in a day and make grand pronouncements about how we're going to change everything. You got to start walking in the right direction and in doing so, build momentum. I had this experience of being a business school dean for 15 years, and I, I went into a business school that the previous dean had to be fired because there's a big scandal that rocked the school and created factions, and it was had a deficit, and it was called the School of Mismanagement in the newspapers <laughs> rather than the School of Management. Oh, man. And I wanted to make it a globally consequential business school, which lots of people laughed at me and said, just make it a decent Southern Ontario business school and we'll be happy. But I said, no, 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 we want, want to be that. But I had an explicit plan, which is I want there to be a total transformation of the school from second rate to globally consequential where people are working together happily and, and being an enormously productive. But each year, I want to make sure we don't change so much that along the way, anybody starts jumping out of buildings and, you know, going to screaming, have hair on mm -hmm. fire saying, you're changing everything and I don't know mm -hmm. what to do. That was my explicit plan. And we did it. And all the external validation, you know, I, at the end of it, I was named Global Business School Dean of the Year and I considered transformational. But it was principled, directioned baby steps. Yeah, micro goals is what we said in the, in the seals. Oh, that's what you call them, micro goals. The kind of micro goals, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you got to know where you're going to go, right? You have to know you're eating an elephant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't declare, oh, there's going to be this massive culture change and everything you do is going to change and, and the like. I just encouraged more of the behavior I liked, tried to discourage the behavior that was counterproductive. By the end of the time, there had been a quite a change in the senior management team, but there was never sort of a night of the long knives where I had to sack everybody and, and the like. And lots of people who would have never imagined that they would want to be in a business school run by me ended up being my best colleagues. If you create massive confrontation about change up front, good luck to you. And that's one of the things I think often leaders attempt to win big, complicated, conceptual battles. Right. Right. And not everyone has the capacity to see that kind of way. That's why they're not leaders or they're not in your role, you know? Exactly. They have to learn through experience. And yeah. You said something around in this uh, conversation that made me think that one of the reasons that they could fail or do, you know, our challenge with change efforts is they try to start with this structure without realizing that culture Eat structure for lunch, <laughs> yes. which is a deviation of culture eat strategy for lunch. Yes. As opposed to, you said, focusing on behaviors, which ultimately defines culture, right? Yes. Yes. I have come to the conclusion that if you believe 
a structural change. You know, we're going to have these people report to those people instead of those people. You're going to be sorely disappointed. It's just not going to work. Okay, you're going to get the same behavior with just a different structure. Yeah. Or you're going to get chaos. <laughs> yes, or, yes, or both. <laughs> so really focusing on how people work together and interact. And the most powerful tool a leader has in his or her toolkit is their own behavior. Mm-hmm. So everybody watches. A uh, brand new CEO of a company I'm working with, and I just said, just start doing things that you think are consistent with the culture and don't do them alone. So they're in fashion retailing. He wanted to go and see life in the stores. Historically, that would have been announced in advance. All the stores would have been prepped. So the CEO would have had a visit where everything was absolutely perfect. It's going to be completely unannounced. Only the pilot knows what city we're going to. And I said, invite anybody who wants to come along to come along. And a bunch took him up on it. Then he could walk the stores and say, here's what's problematic. Here's stuff that's being done really well. And it enabled them to see how his mind worked and what he thought needed to happen for the brands to do better. That's going to have a huge knock-on effect. Every one of those seven or eight people is going to go back to their people with messages and what we need to focus on and how we've got to operate and the like. So, and that was just one action, you know, and yeah. there could be five or seven of those things kind of going on. So I mean, absolutely. Again, back to my seal experience, which taught me more about leadership than business school and whatnot. The planning is done by the entire team. Yeah. Again, this is also different than, you know, the more hierarchical army where the planning is done by the officers and then they kind of hand the plan to the team. Yep. The most junior person has as much input as anyone else because the best idea is the best idea. You know, yes. period. Doesn't matter where it comes from. And then the other thing that's cool about this is SEALs also understand the power of imagery. Because you imagine if you had 14 or, or 16 guys heading out on a mission, they all had a different image in their head of what the mission parameters were, or what victory looked like. Could get a very different outcome. Yes. So we use a lot of video and pictures and imagery, and we allow that massive fluidity on the ground for how to execute. It works because everyone's still got a very clear vision of what the outcome is supposed to look like. Well, when most people think of the military, they think of military industrial complex type management systems. Yep. And then they hear about special ops and they're like, oh, yeah, they work fast and they work well as teams. And those are all true. Yeah. But the question is why? Yeah. Why do they have that execution agility and why do they deal well with uncertainty and complexity? It's because they've trained themselves to be very agile with their planning and their execution and their cohesiveness as a unit is that once we get in the field, all ranks come off. You know, it's like, okay, everyone is the same because it's the mission first, the teammate second, and then you third on the list of priorities. You get the results and they look pretty when they're delivered. Yeah. But It's a sausage-making process to get there. And it's just that way in business, as you know. Customer sees this beautiful product at the end, but man, there's times where you're like, this is a capital S show, you know what I mean? Yes. How would you define strategic planning for this conceptual age of exponential growth that we're in? I would say the model has to be, you do need to make bold choices, but you do need to watch what happens and uh, tweak and adjust. And the only way you're going to do that is to be more explicit with yourself and your team about what we believe will happen. 
because of what we believe is true, we've made this set of choices. Mm-hmm. So let's go do those choices, manifest those choices in our action, but then not be so foolish as to say, regardless of what happens, we're just going to keep charging ahead. It's to say, if something that would have had to be true turns out not to be true, we don't just plow through. We say, what way would we adjust for that? So you need boldness. You need to be explicit about what you believe is behind your choices. Then watch and adjust and adjust and adjust. And the thing I object to by far and away the most are the people who say it's a VUCA world. So just chill. Don't make any choices until things become clear. Oh, that's exactly opposite in my opinion. <laughs> right. We have a saying, doubt is eliminated through action. Yes. Yeah. It's got to be the best informed action that is the smallest arc to success in the moment or in this time period, right? Yep. That you can take so you can get immediate feedback and activate that OODA loop again. Absolutely. Right? But if you just sit back and sort of wait for the VUCA to disappear, you might be waiting a century. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. There is no choice but to act in business under uncertainty, competition, and constraints. You've got to act, and then you've got to learn from those actions Mm -hmm. to act even more intelligently. And if you don't act, you will never learn a damn thing about being more intelligent. And then the corollary to that is lead by example, which Mm -hmm. you addressed, and recognize that it's all about the people. So the culture is going to drive success, not the structure or the strategy. You got it. Awesome. This has been a delightful conversation, Roger. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I learned a ton and, and it was fun talking about my SEAL philosophy and strategies. And <laughs> if I can help you out there, I'm all, you know, I'm all game. That's great. That's great. I mean, I may well take you up on it that the synergies were just greater than I might have even imagined, even though mm-hmm. I had a positive view of it. Thank you for taking the time. I always appreciate when folks take the time to read my book and mm-hmm. then have a conversation about it. So I'm the most thankful one in this conversation. This is fun. Thank you. The New Way to Think is the book. It's on the market, wherever you buy books. And uh, is there social media or online or wherever? Sure. So Twitter at Roger L. Martin. I write a Medium column every Monday. Uh, You can find me there. Or my website is www.rogerlmartin.com. If you don't put the L in, It'll go to a really nice man, a real estate agent in uh, in Houston, <laughs> who spends half his life uh, forwarding emails to me. So <laughs> www.rogerlmartin.com. All right. Thanks again, sir. You are most welcome. You take care. What an interesting guy, Roger L. Martin, author of A New Way to Think, Harvard MBA and, and undergraduate advisor to top CEOs and what an incredible business thinker. A lot of similarities that we uncovered thinking about how elite Navy SEALs get shit done and how the most effective business leaders are reorganizing for projects instead of process, throwing out the old strategic plan models and creating more flexible and pliable plans and focusing on the people instead of structure, all things that the SEALs do really well. It's a great episode. If you're a business leader, you're not going to want to miss it. And if you're a student or an entrepreneur and interested in how to organize for operational excellence, then you're not going to want to miss this. Show notes are up at markdevine.com. Video is at our YouTube channel, markdevine.com slash YouTube. And you can reach me on my social media, markdevine at Twitter and at realmarkdevine, Facebook and Instagram. And you can find me on my LinkedIn channel. Special shout out to my amazing team, Jason Sanderson, Jeff Haskell, who helped bring this show to you every week with incredible guests like Roger. And also, if you haven't reviewed the show, it's helpful to rate and review it. So please do so wherever you listen to this show. 
And our newsletter comes out every Tuesday. The new Divine Inspiration has the synopsis of the week's podcast, my blog, a book I'm reading, and other interesting things or habits that I think you'd find valuable. So if you're not on the distro list and you'd like to be on that, then go to markdivine.com and subscribe. Thanks for being part of the solution to a world that is changing fast, is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. We have to be the change you want to see in the world, which is a more positive, abundant, compassionate future at scale. So it's important that you are part of the process to be the change in yourself first, and then you will pay that forward as a leader. Hooyah to you. Thanks for doing that. And thanks for having the courage to think differently. It's time to pick up Roger's book, A New Way to Think, and learn how to think differently. Hooyah. Bye now. Bye now.